Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.11, The Road Towards Stability. Before we get started this week, I want to give you all an update on where things are heading. For the next three episodes, I plan to work through a variety of topics on how Jamestown develops over the next few decades. We are going to be looking at primarily three topics moving forward. These topics include the economic changes, continuing and escalating conflict with the Powhatan Confederacy, and the evolution of the political systems. After this, we should be in a place where we can set Jamestown aside and move on to discussing the colonies up in New England. To give you all an outlook on where things are heading for the rest of the season, I anticipate that we are going to spend a very significant amount of time on those New England colonies. After that, I've got a couple more subjects that I want to wrap up, and that is going to bring us to the end of our first season. Now, before you fret too much and get too sad about the end of the season, my anticipation is that we are not even halfway there yet, so don't worry, we've got a lot of ground to cover before then. This week, I plan to pick up right after the starving time and begin working our way back through the future of the colony. As we move, we are going to continue to pay special attention to those three topics that I outlined a minute ago. The starving time marks that symbolic low point for the colony. However, it's incorrect to pretend that they are out of the woods quite yet. The death rates are going to remain high for at least another decade. Likewise, there is now going to be periods of warfare between the native people and the English, and this is going to continue to be a defining feature for decades to follow, especially following the death of Powhatan. All of this will be along the backdrop of a changing political reality for Virginia, which will see a shift towards a more absolutist position, followed later by the introduction of an actual local representative governing structure. Immediately following that terrible winter, Lord Delaware would take ill. Delaware had long suffered from poor health. This has been what has delayed his crossing to Virginia the year before. However, it appears that he recovered just long enough to board a ship, stop the colonists from abandoning Jamestown, and then promptly caught scurvy and dysentery. Delaware never fully recovers, and by 1611, he himself is on his way back to England. His replacement was Sir Thomas Dale. Dale took control of the colony upon arriving, with 300 men in tow in May of 1611. When Dale assumed control of the colony, he brought with him new and harsher punishments. Looking at the new laws in the colony gives us some sense of the things that matter at the time for the colonists. When reading the new laws, two themes become readily apparent. First, these laws are based on martial law, and with it come those strict punishments that you would expect to see under a martial law system. Second, these laws come with a very heavy dose of religion. Now, we have not really talked about religion in the Virginia colony. However, I will take a quick detour right now to discuss it. Religion is a major part of life in Virginia and is something that was closely followed. In a moment, when I discuss the new laws of 1610, this is going to become clear. Religion in the colony followed the Church of England. However, much as how social structures in Virginia struggled to find any kind of footing, so did much of the social structure of the church. The brutal conditions of Virginia basically rendered it impossible for the development of an early aristocracy in Virginia. It may be through this that we fail to see the strict social hierarchy develop in the Virginia church as well. With that being said, the church inside of Virginia often does appear more like what we will eventually see in Massachusetts. Well, the settlers in Virginia were not Puritans. There is that same rejection of the grandeurs of the church that we will see from the Puritans. 
the church that emerges in Virginia will feature far less of the pomp that is associated with the Church of England and ultimately is going to have far more in common with the church that we see establish itself in Massachusetts. Of course, in a few episodes time when we begin looking at the Puritans, we are going to spend much of our time focused on the religious question, as that is so going to define the Puritans, and will define them far more than it ends up defining the settlers in Virginia. So with that introduction, let's take a moment and look at some of these laws that the Jamestown colonists had to obey. First, church service was mandatory in the colony, with both a morning and an evening service required. Speak out against God? Well, doing so is going to carry with it a death sentence. Use God's name in vain? The punishment for a first-time offender is an extremely vague description of simply severe punishment, with a second offense being death. If you make a comment that might be taken as a shot against God, the punishment is, you guessed it, death. Talking poorly of priests will get you whipped three times in the public square, whereas acts of sodomy carried a death sentence, mere fornication only meant a public whipping. It is worth noting that of these new laws, the first 11 deal almost exclusively with religious matters. Beyond religion, however, we do see laws that are put in place to control the normal operating procedures of the colony. The new code laid out that Indians coming to trade shall not have their goods stolen under the penalty of death. Intentionally break a tool? Well, that's going to get you whipped. Conspiring against the governor, steal fruit or vegetables, or borrow a boat without permission? All three of those are going to get a death sentence on your head. These laws break down so specifically that we know that any banker who is dishonest about the weight of the bread he is selling, or does anything other than spend his time baking, will lose an ear. The new laws for the colony are made up of 37 separate provisions, and I assure you are filled to the brim with brutal physical punishments as well as death sentences. If you have noticed that none of the punishments involve prison time, this is likely for two reasons. First, while the concept of confinement had existed since ancient times, incarceration for an offense really doesn't begin to appear until the late 17th century, with it beginning to become more of a popular option during the 18th and 19th century. Beyond that, even had they wanted to use prisons in Virginia, they simply had no pragmatic way to do this for the colonists. Prisons require manpower, and the settlers just don't possess that yet. We also do get a clue from the laws that there was a serious concern within the Virginia Company that the settlers would defect across enemy lines and attempt to join with Powhatan. For the settlers who did make this attempt, the accepted practice was to bring along something of value to trade with Powhatan. Typically, the items that Powhatan most desperately wanted and needed were stealing guns. Those who brought nothing but themselves were at best turned away and commonly killed. Those who provided something of value to Powhatan were typically invited to stay. Based on the laws that we have already covered, it should not come as much of a surprise that the penalty for joining Powhatan was death. In spring of 1612, Dale managed to recapture several of these deserters. The fate that met those whom he captured ranged from being hung, shot, and burned at the stake. Elsewhere, I've seen it said that some of the recovered colonists had their backs broken on the wheel. What remains without question is that those who had defected to Powhatan were killed immediately upon being recovered. The harshness of these punishments was likely more in place to set an example for the rest of the colony rather than to punish those who deserted. For the Virginia Company, defecting colonists present a threefold problem. The first problem is that in order for Powhatan to accept the person into his people, he typically wanted weapons in return. The English wanted desperately to keep their firearms out of the hands of Powhatan. 
The English made no mistake in realizing that the weapons that fell into his hands were liable to be used against them in future conflicts. The second issue was simply of manpower. The colony at this point was still small, and the death rate remained high. For the first decade plus, the colony needed all the hands it could muster. Losing men to Powhatan would have done nothing but exacerbate the situation. Further, keep in mind that the men defecting to Powhatan may well have had some knowledge about English positions and tactics. This is not something that those back in Jamestown would want falling into the hands of an aggressive force. Finally, there is the problem of optics. The Virginia Company by this point was shifting their pitches, yes. Well, Virginia was no longer being pitched as a virtual paradise. They still didn't want to discuss how hostile conditions could actually be between those in Virginia and the natives. While it is one thing to say that the land required hard work, it is another thing to tell people that things are so bad that settlers are defecting over to the Indians. This is something that the Virginia Company was very, very eager to keep quiet. These new laws would first begin to be implemented under Lord Delaware's reign. However, as his stay was short and he was mostly bedridden, it is under Dale that we really see the thrust of the new laws taking force. Dale was tasked with the seemingly impossible job of turning around the otherwise fledgling colony. Dale was not completely without success in this endeavor. We've spent the last few weeks discussing the carousel of people running the colony. Dale's going to come in and he's going to be able to bring a new stability to the colony for approximately the next five years. Initially under Delaware, and then later under Dale, the colony would begin a new period that was far more authoritarian in nature. The laws that we just discussed describe a colony where punishments were harsh and death sentences for even relatively minor offenses were not out of the question. Dale instituted twice daily church service. Work was something that just became expected. Like Smith, Dale stood fast on the policy that if you wanted to eat, you had better work. Failure to work led to lashings, amongst other things, and Dale was not afraid of corporal punishment at all. It was something that he often doled out himself. It is during the time that Dale is governor that we see the first settlers who came over under a term of indenture gain their freedom. Indentured servants were a fixture during the early years of Jamestown. The standard term for somebody who could not pay their own way over was seven years of working for somebody else before gaining their own freedom. That means in 1614, the first indentured servants who had come over and had managed to survive everything else earned their freedom. Dale was generous towards these settlers, and upon the end of their time being indentured, they earned a three-acre plot of land. This was an effective system for the colony. Not only did it mean that the people coming over had something tangible to work towards, but it also meant that upon the end of a person's term of being indentured, they would now have three acres on which they could form their own farms and increase the overall yield of food in the colony. Jameson would enter a far more stable period following the starving time, largely due to the leadership under Dale. Over the next several years, the colony is also going to see a change in what they were seeking to accomplish. By this point, it is becoming clear that the vast amounts of gold present in Mexico just don't exist in Virginia. However, the Virginia Company did see the benefit of using Virginia as a place to grow valuable crops. Over the next few decades, we are going to see Virginia become an increasingly important producer of crops, and more specifically, one crop, tobacco. The growth of tobacco is something that we are going to begin talking about later today and is going to be something that we talk about in episodes to follow. While the colony was changing during the period, one thing did remain a major concern, and that was relations with the Powhatan people. The conflict would define the next decade and a half for both groups. Where we last left off, we saw Powhatan withdrawing his support for the Jamestown colonists. 
This would be one of the contributing factors that led to the mass starvation that we dealt with last episode. In fact, the last time that we actually talked about Paladin specifically, he personally was busy torturing and killing John Ratcliffe. It should come as little surprise that following the execution of Ratcliffe, the relations between the colonists and the Indians were at a pretty low point. The relationship between the settlers and the Indian people is going to go through several stages, ranging from war in the years after 1610 to a period of peace, and then back to a time of increased instability, which sees massacres on both sides. Trade did not resume between the Powhatan people and Jamestown throughout 1610. Powhatan, realizing that his hopes of the colonists just up and leaving was not going to come to fruition, returned to a policy of containment. Powhatan enlisted the help of nearby tribes and had them constantly harassing the settlers. This is going to lead to numerous violent encounters between the groups throughout 1610, and these attacks proved to be an effective way to keep the colonists from moving beyond the fortified safety of Jamestown. As we've discussed previously, the location of Jamestown was basically the worst possible place in the area, and by pinning the colonists inside their fort, the local tribes were able to wreak havoc. These attacks pushed the settlers to take an increasingly violent stance against the Indians. During one incident, George Percy led a raid that killed over 65 Indians and burned towns and crops. During this raid, Percy and his men took three hostages, a woman and two children. On the trip back to Jamestown, the children were thrown in the water and shot as they tried to swim. And while the woman was initially spared, she was eventually executed herself upon arriving in Jamestown, and Percy was reprimanded for not doing the job himself. This marks a change in dealing with the relationship between the English and the Indians. The colonial leaders meant for this to be a display of power, the thought being that if the Indians understood the full might of the English, they would come to their senses and realize that there is no point in resistance and that it was in their best interest to do what the English told them to do. This policy begins under Lord Delaware. However, it would reach its peak once Dale took over the colony. Upon Dale assuming control, he had absolutely no problem taking a harsher stance towards Powhatan. What ensues as a result of this is years of back and forth fighting between the groups. From 1610s through 1613, Powhatan and the English continue to fight this slow war of harassment. Neither side really ever gains an advantage over the other. I have seen this period between 1610 and 13 referred to as the First Anglo-Powhatan War. However, beyond the harassment that we've been talking about, as well as a few English raids like what Percy had led, don't get the idea that there was ever really a period of sustained fighting. Powhatan wanted to check English expansion beyond Jamestown, which he did successfully for the most part. The English, for their part under Dale, were able to capture some new lands. However, widespread expansion was suppressed. Well, skirmishes would continue for three years, an effective stalemate existed between the two groups. And the stalemate would remain in effect up until the spring of 1613. It is during 1613 that colonist Thomas Argall would have a breakthrough. Argyle was an up-and-comer and had been the captain of the ship that brought Lord Delaware to Virginia. While out on a mission to trade with the Indians, Argyle learned that Pocahontas was nearby. Recognizing the opportunity that this presented, Argyle moved quickly on the information. Pocahontas at this time was with the Potawatomi people, possibly visiting the family of her husband. While the Potawatomi were part of the Powhatan Confederacy, they were at the fringes of an already loose confederation. The Potawatomi tribe regularly traded with Jamestown and likely didn't want to lose the trade with the English. Wanting to keep the English happy, when Argyll came and demanded that Pocahontas be turned over, the Potawatomi people obliged. Powhatan obviously realized that the English had scored a huge victory when they took Pocahontas hostage. 
Paladin did make an attempt to trade back for her, offering up eight English settlers that he himself had taken and was holding hostage. However, the English knew that holding the daughter of the guy that they've been at war with for the last several years was far more valuable to them than the eight settlers would be. The English told Powhatan, thank you but no thank you, and Pocahontas was returned to Jamestown to be held as a hostage. During her time in Jamestown, Pocahontas was by all accounts treated kindly. Her jailer was the Reverend Alexander Whitaker, and Whitaker was known throughout the colony as being intense in his beliefs, even amongst the other settlers. Whitaker had come from a successful family. His father was a professor of divinity at Cambridge. Whitaker had chosen to travel to Virginia to serve for a period of three years, interested in converting the local Indian tribes. While working as the jailer for Pocahontas, Whitaker spent a large amount of time teaching her English and instructing her on matters of Christianity. Whitaker closely held the belief that the Indians were like the native Britons before the Romans brought them civilization. Whitaker, therefore, was not surprised to find that Pocahontas was a quick learner. Well in Jamestown, Pocahontas met a 28-year-old widow, John Rolfe. Rolfe had come over to Jamestown just after the winter of 1609-1610 on the expedition that brought Lord Delaware himself. Rolfe is going to be somebody who we are going to talk about much more in just a little bit when we get to the subject of tobacco. Well, today his reputation is so closely tied to Pocahontas who would eventually become his wife, his real legacy in Virginia is that he is the first colonist to successfully cultivate and sell tobacco, the crop that Virginia would ultimately become so famous for. A year after her capture, Pocahontas would marry Rolfe. For the Virginia company, this was the finest advertising that they could have possibly hoped for. Pocahontas was everything that they wanted in an Indian woman. She was smart, she learned English, and she presented well. The marriage likewise did much to bring an increased sense of peace between Powhatan and the English. Pocahontas was initially a hostage in the traditional sense. She provided the English with leverage over Powhatan. Following the marriage, however, Powhatan was now more closely connected to the colony than he had ever previously been before. After all, his own daughter had married one of the English men. The power of this alliance was not something that was lost on Powhatan. He had been personally asked and did grant permission for Pocahontas to marry Rolf. And while it is possible that Pocahontas did not feel as though she had much of a say in the actual matter, Powhatan did understand the importance of the marriage and the potential alliance that it could form for him. Regardless of his beliefs, the result of the capture of Pocahontas was a temporary end of the skirmishes that took place between the Powhatan people and the English. This would officially mark the end of the First Anglo-Powhatan War. As for Pocahontas and Rolf, their value to the Virginia Company now extended beyond the borders of North America. The Virginia Company realized the power of Pocahontas in selling the colony back in England and knew that their value in London far exceeded what they could provide in Jamestown. Following their marriage, Pocahontas took on the Christian name Rebecca. In 1616, she and Rolf traveled to England where they were greeted with much fanfare. Pocahontas became a bona fide celebrity in England and was treated as such. However, just two years later in 1617, just prior to the return to Virginia, Pocahontas became unexpectedly and violently ill. A short time later, she died. The cause of her death remains unknown to this day. Rolf ended up returning to Virginia and would eventually marry for a third time. We're going to return to Rolf in just a minute when we examine the importance of tobacco. Pocahontas would leave an important legacy following her death. During her time in England, she was treated well, and as discussed a moment ago, she was seen as a celebrity and was treated like royalty. For the Virginia Company, Pocahontas was exactly the image of an Indian woman that they wanted to portray. In the years following her death, she would continue to remain extremely popular. However, the narrative around her would change. As we will see next week, 
Following the death of Powhatan, the English relations with the Indian take a dramatic turn for the worst. By the time that John Smith wrote his general history of Virginia in 1624, the views of the Powhatan Confederacy had taken on a much, much more negative look. And as we will see in the next episode, in the years following Powhatan's death, both sides would launch brutal attacks against each other. And these go far beyond the skirmishes that we had seen before in 1610 and 1613. Several of these encounters involve outright slaughter. When Smith does publish his general histories on Virginia, the narrative changed to the point that Pocahontas was no longer seen as a representative example of the Virginia Indians. Rather, she was the exception. Her popularity is exemplified by Smith using her in his writings in 1624. And as we have discussed several times by now, her very name was something that could help him sell more books and is likely the reason for his story about how Pocahontas had saved his life. Pocahontas's popularity has largely endured over the years, as she has continued to be a subject of interest for both academics and the public at large. The kidnapping of Pocahontas led to a period of peace between the Powhatan and the English. This peace would prove to be a critical factor for the English. The stability that came along with the peace would allow Jamestown to begin producing the crop that it would become the most known for, tobacco. No single development is going to be bigger for the stability of Jamestown Colony than tobacco. Tobacco is going to forever change Virginia, and even today, Virginia continues to produce huge amounts of tobacco, with only North Carolina and Kentucky producing more. The development of tobacco in Virginia was made possible primarily for two reasons. During the first years of the colony, the Virginia Company was applying direct control over the daily actions of the colony. The Virginia Company, however, had come to realize that this heavy-handed approach was doing little for making the colony profitable. As we have discussed before, the Virginia Company had begun making private ownership more of a possibility. Following 1614, the first indentured servants began to get their three acres, and would begin to farm it for themselves. Likewise, by the middle of the 1610s, it had become evident that the large reserves of gold and precious metals just weren't going to be discovered. As the Virginia Company began making land something that was available for private ownership, the company began giving colonists who paid their own way to Virginia a sizable plot of land to do whatever they wanted with. Specifically, settlers who came over and were not indentured received a 50-acre plot of land. If that person brought over a servant or another relative at their own personal expense, they got another 50 acres. This meant two things. First, it encouraged wealthy prospective settlers to bring as many people as they could to the colony at their own expense. Remember earlier I said that they were trying to populate the colony and bring more people over? Well, this is how they were doing it. For the company, it helped them get more people there and shifted the expense onto the individual colonists instead of the company for bringing them in there. For the colonists, it gave them a large plot of land which they would then be encouraged to cultivate. This would further help the colony, as the person who now had a personal stake in the land is going to have financial incentive to make sure that land is as valuable as possible. John Rolfe began to first experiment with planting tobacco in 1612. Tobacco had started becoming an increasingly popular plant in Europe, and Rolfe had discovered that the hot, humid Virginia climate was perfect for growing it. This gave the colony a distinct advantage over the home islands. England proper is not exactly known for its long, hot summers, whereas Virginia provided that exact climate. As tobacco continued to grow in popularity over Europe, they drove up the need for places to grow it. 
As private land ownership became common in Virginia, it meant that settlers now had these large plots on which to grow their large crops. And while food was obviously critical for the survival of the colony, the Virginia Company was interested in making profit. It helped the situation further that John Rolfe began growing tobacco for the colony at a time that it was entering into a period of relative peace. Following the capture of Pocahontas in 1613, Jamestown entered into a period where conflict between the Powhatan tribes and the English declined. This period of peace allowed the English to place their focus on matters such as cultivation instead of having to worry constantly about self-defense from the Indians. Likewise, this change allowed the colony to begin to expand past its borders of just Jamestown. Remember that for a long time, Powhatan's primary goal had been the containment of the English. Yet during this period of peace, the colony was now able to expand past the fort and take advantage of the vast amounts of land that Virginia had to offer. This makes it much easier for the English to properly cultivate their land and would allow for the rapid growth of tobacco. The rise in tobacco would lead to a huge increase in population as people flocked to Virginia to get in on the ground floor of this new cash crop. Tobacco is a labor-intensive plant, which drove up the number of indentured servants coming into the colony as well, further growing the population. For example, in 1616, there are 350 settlers in Jamestown. By the time 1650 arrives, there are going to be more than 13,000 people in the colony. And this is despite a yearly mortality rate inside the colony that remained close to 25%. By 1638, Virginia would become the primary tobacco producer for all of Europe. The five years after the starving time, sees Jamestown begin to develop an identity that it would carry not only through the following decades, but into the coming centuries. Virginia would quickly emerge as one of the world's leading tobacco producers. It is during this time that we begin to see the colony enter a period of relative stability. No longer are the Jamestown settlers going to find themselves in danger of dying out like the Roanoke settlers had. And this is not to say that life in Virginia had in any way become easy. The mortality rate will remain high for a long time, and life in the colony is undeniably rough. We will see next week that the difficult times for the colony are not over by any means. However, the survival of the colony is never going to be called into question again. Next time, we are going to begin looking at what will become the defining feature of the next several decades for Virginia, specifically the relationship between the English and the Powhatan people, a relationship that is going to turn increasingly bitter and lead to warfare and massacres on both sides. By the end of next episode, we are going to be able to wrap up that part of our story. Until then, I want to thank you for listening, and I do want to quickly mention that if you head on over to the website or to our Facebook group, you can see a picture of Pocahontas if you are curious what she looked like. We actually do have a portrait of her. So head on over to the website that is at uspoliticalpodcast.com, or you can search for us on Facebook at The Political History of the United States. I hope you guys have a great two weeks, and I will see you back here then to begin discussing the conflicts between the Powhatan people and the Virginia Indians.